Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Stu Grimson. If you love alliteration, you will love Stu. He is an athlete, an attorney, an author, an analyst, and most surprisingly, an animation. On The Simpsons, no less. At six foot six and 240 pounds, Stu played more than 700 games over 14 seasons in the National Hockey League, primarily during the 1990s. Known as an enforcer with over 2,000 career penalty minutes, which, by the way, equals 35 hours in the sin bin, Stu had 211 NHL fights and reckons he either tied or won 80% of them. Thus, it will surprise no one that his stature, plus reputation as a fighter, plus his surname combined to earn Stu Grimson the very cool nickname, The Grim Reaper. Let's get right to it. Welcome, Stu, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I'm great. I got a little bit of a sinus cold. I will say that I never get a summer cold. Uh, I came down with one today, so I'm sorry for the, to you and your listeners, Andrew. I apologize for that. But I'm I'm well. That aside, and I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville was the last NHL team I signed for, and you know this Rolling Stone kind of stopped and started to gather some moss right here in Tennessee, and we love it. So Nashville's been home since I retired from playing for the most part. Fantastic. And if I may ask, how is your family? How are the kids? Yeah, everybody's well. Everybody's well. Um, you know, the kids, uh, I have four children. They're all pretty close. Three girls and a boy. The three girls are right here in Nashville, you know, starting families of their own now. I'm kind of uh, at a stage where my adult kids are starting to bring little people into the world. So that's very exciting. My son and his wife don't live far away. My son is the third of my four children. He lives in uh, Atlanta with his wife, so he's uh, he was within about a four-hour drive as well. So we see lots of we see lots of the kids. Fantastic, that's great. Now, Stu, you note your final NHL team was the Nashville Predators. They will not be in the playoffs this year. They appear ready for a reset. What's what's the vibe in Nashville these days with regards to the hockey team? Yeah, it's um, you know it's kind of a franchise in transition uh, to some degree. You know, in the front office, of course, and and on the ice as well. I'm sure a lot of your folks, uh, followers, hockey hockey fans back in Canada uh, would have recognized that the first and only general manager of the Nashville Predators, David Poyle, is in the throes of kind of stepping down from that position. He'll hand the baton off to um, the first coach and longtime coach of the Nashville Predators, Barry Trotz, is going to step into his first management role. You know, kind of an interesting transition there. Uh, Barry was highly thought of while he coached here in in Nashville as this um, as this organization, this franchise was kind of cutting its teeth uh, in the NHL. And on the ice, you know, uh, we saw a bit of a sell-off at the trade deadline. I think everybody really felt that, given what they accomplished last year, buttoning down a playoff spot, that Nashville would add to what they did last year. They fell short of making the playoffs in, you know, kind of deadline time, trade deadline time. Um, I think they forced their general manager's hand to some degree. They were a seller at the deadline, so... Folks like uh, Nino Niederreiter, Tanner Janot uh, left at the deadline, uh, Mikel Granlin left at the deadline, and draft picks and prospects kind of came back as part of all that. So, you know, I, I think the best way to, to say, maybe characterize the current state of the Nashville Predators is to say that um, they're kind of retooling a bit. And David, as he hands the baton off to Barry Trotz. He's kind of stocked the cupboard with a lot of draft currency. And, you know, Barry's got a very clear mandate uh, ahead of him. Select well, 
uh, plan for the future. And, you know, hopefully in a three-year, say four-year timeline, this team's ready to compete for a playoff spot again. Fantastic. Let's go back all the way, if I may, get the Stu Grimson story. Where were you born? And describe your upbringing. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, born in Western Canada. Uh, born in Vancouver. Uh, grew up all around the interior of British Columbia. I was uh, I was a cop's kid growing up. My father served 31 years in the Mounties. And back then, when dad was current in the force, you know, if you wanted to get ahead, if you wanted a transfer, a promotion, a promotion kind of came hand in hand with a transfer. So for that reason, um, you know, the Grimson family, during my childhood, we were moving every two or three years. So bounced around a lot all over British Columbia, but, you know, got to appreciate kind of every major quadrant of that beautiful, beautiful province that I still call home. And, you know, it was it was around the age of five or six that, you know, my parents offered me the opportunity to take up organized hockey. All my buddies were doing it. So I uh, I said yes. And, and, you know, by no means even suspecting at that stage in my life or my parents eyes that uh, that a future in hockey was, you know, was in the cards for me. But that's kind of those are my you know, auspicious beginnings, for lack of a better way to describe them. Well, you were apparently known as a bit of a, a wild child. Daredevil tricks were in your uh, trick bag. And oh, as a fighter, you were a bit of a natural. You apparently caught the eye of a scout for the WHL's Regina Pats, not on the ice, but in a street fight. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of one of those, put this in the category of, you know, truth is actually stranger than fiction uh my buddies and i were heading towards we're going uh, we're walking main street uh kamloops british columbia i was in my middle teens probably 15 or so we're heading down the street we're going to go watch a movie there's a group of guys like they worked at drill rigs they were from out of town right and guys you know we had a lot of drill rig activity energy exploration in and around kamloops and a lot of these guys you know these guys that were in their mid-20s into their 30s and beyond would come into into Kamloops on the weekend They and they'd blow all their pay. They'd be whooping and hollering all weekend long, kind of tearing up the streets of, um, of Kamloops. So a group of those guys ends up on the same corner of the street right, right in front of the Kamloops movie theater. My buddies and I are all wearing our Sahali junior high football jackets. We're all wearing our jackets. And then one of these guys starts mouthing off at the our entire group hey sahali sucks sahali sucks onions i mean he never even heard of sahali before <laughs> he was just looking to start something my buddies kind of had formed a line uh, a circle and around this individual i pushed aside the shoulders of two of my buddies waded through the pile and i just clocked this guy i just cold cocked him right in the face popped two teeth out of his face and it was on. There's this big rumble outside, out in front of the movie theater, downtown Kamloops at, you know, 7 o'clock at night. Unbeknownst to me at that time, Glenn Dirk was the head scout of the Regina Pats of the WHL. He lives in Kamloops at the time, makes his home there. He's driving down Main Street Kamloops. He sees this whole ruckus going on. He goes, wait a minute. I, I know that kid. That's the Grimson kid. He's pretty, he's pretty tough. <laughs> I mean, I was I was tangling with a guy that was probably 10 years my senior at that point, holding my own. And, you know, long story short, crazy as that sounds, maybe it doesn't sound so crazy, given the era, you know, it was a very physical, um, fight-filled era of the game. But 
that was uh, that was the moment of discovery. That's how I ended up a member of the Regina Pats organization. Well, you're clearly a natural. They were sold on you, but you struggled a bit as a WHL rookie. And your father, a Mountie, as you noted, he told the coach of the Pats, "You are not turning my son into a goon." How'd you kind of deal with all these different pressures? Yeah, it was hard. Um, it was hard on me. You know, when, it, it, when you're starting out, you're you're trying to kind of cut your teeth in the WHL. For a player like me, I wasn't blessed with the skills of a 40-50 goal scorer. Um, I was a big, gangly, physical, aggressive kid. And, you know, one of the ways to, to kind of secure a role, one of the ways to contribute was to play this very aggressive role. That's a hard thing to do, though, when you're, you know, you're, you're playing four or five, a handful of shifts a night, and then you're asked to kind of, you know, engage somebody like you on the other side. I found it really, really hard. As my career wore on, you know, I began to take on more responsibility it just from a playing point of view by my last year junior i had 50 plus points you know was playing a regular turn was playing on the power play uh even for goodness sake so you know things improved over time but you know those early years and this you know was as frustrating to me as it was to my father my parents at the time it's not a typical role it's it's not a necessarily a a, a glamorous uh, role and, and it has a certain kind of a negative connotation as well, especially when you're talking about young guys who have aspirations to do different things on the ice. They're, you know, they're kind of uh, maybe cast in this role for lack of a better way to describe it. So it was a, there was a, you know, kind of a feeling out process. It was a difficult time. It was hard on my mom. It was hard on both my parents. But, you know, I think ultimately everybody kind of got their arms around it. And, you know, they recognized that a guy like me could play this physical role. You know, it applied to the NHL, even at the highest level of the game. And my parents now understand as part of all this, and this is, you know, a, a, a refrain that I sing very, very frequently. I owe the game a lot. I owe the game a great deal. This was my pathway to playing the game. It's a role that, yes, it wasn't very glamorous, but I accepted it. Uh, I did it with with conviction and integrity. And again, it afforded me a really, a wonderful, a wonderful, wonderful start in life. Well, let's talk about that start in the NHL, Stu. You were drafted 143rd overall by the Calgary Flames, 1985. What was your draft experience like? Were these the days where you would attend in person? Was there any expectation on your part of being drafted? Yeah, there was expectation. Uh, maybe just to insert uh, one qualifying point, drafted two times. First uh, drafted in 1983 after my first year of junior by the Detroit Red Wings. I ended up going in the 10th round of the draft that year. I believe this rule still holds up today. If you draft someone, but you fail to offer that person a contract within a year of having drafted the player, that player goes back into the draft. So that's what happened to me. Drafted in 83, uh, played a year, another year of junior. Detroit didn't offer me a contract. Go back into the draft for the start of my third year of junior, and Calgary took me after that that 50, 50 point season that I have. Very fond of saying, Andrew, a player so nice they thought they drafted <laughs> twice. I was going to ask you, do they call this the Stu Grimson rule, or uh... <laughs> it's happened to a few people? It's happened to a few people over time, but um, yeah, Calgary ended up ultimately ended up my pathway into the NHL. And um, it was it was a great organization for me to cut my teeth 
uh, as well. They were very forward thinking. Things like, uh, you know, year round off ice fitness program, nutrition, nutrition that helps the athlete perform uh, to his optimal level. All these things were rather new to the NHL, but these were things that Calgary had embraced. And getting my start there, I think, really served me well as a pro. I kind of had some um, some good habits, so, so some solid education as a just in terms of your pro ath- professional athletic career. I had some solid principles kind of baked into the recipe at that point early on. Well, a really ironic turn to your career. It was only your third NHL game, and you got in a fight with a real tough hombre, the Oilers' Dave Brown. You suffered a fractured skull. You required emergency surgery. But it's been said the irony is that this convinced you that you could make it as an NHL enforcer. Yeah. You know, it's 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 kind of it's strange. It's counterintuitive for a lot of people, even illogical. But I suffered the worst beat you could probably ever suffer as an NHL enforcer. I fought Brownie, did really well against him the first time I fought him. The third time I fought him was kind of payback for Brownie. And he he just you know he wrecked me. He he broke my orbital in three places, fractured my cheekbone under my right eye. But honestly, you know, I I, I remember vividly, Andrew, sitting laying in my hospital bed post surgery, and for a guy, you know, just give you a, a glimpse into the things that I struggled with at that moment in my life. You know, I had this fear around the around the role, uh, a fear associated with the role. Uh, it wasn't really a fear of being hit or being, uh, 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 you know, feeling pain or anything like that. I mean, I had a th- high pain threshold. I'd been through some really gruesome injuries even up to that point. What it revealed to me, though, it was more about my fear of losing, the humiliation around losing in front of your peers, in front of your teammates, in front of 20,000 fans. But the point I'm making is there came this realization after my loss to Dave Brown you know, if I, this is the worst beat that uh, an NHL enforcer, a pro enforcer could ever sustain. But if I can bounce back from this and I can go on to play this role, you know, this this could prove kind of a way for me to master that fear. And um, it was it was a breakthrough. It was a very liberating moment for me. It was, I think it was the first moment at which it became easier for me to manage the mindset necessary for that role or create the mindset necessary for that role so yeah it was it was a real breakthrough and then of course there's a physical toll Stu, you uh, estimate you've suffered a dozen or more concussions you were in 400 fights in junior the minors the nhl before you were actually diagnosed with a concussion why did you not disclose the bulk of these concussions to the team and i'm going to assume the answer was it was a different time it was a different time. It really was. Um, I will say this, though. You know, I think some of the things I'm about to describe, Andrew, still apply today. And any time I get to make the point to a young hockey player starting out, a young athlete starting out for that matter, you know best if you've suffered uh, head trauma. You know best if that head trauma has caused you disorientation of any kind. Self-reporting is critical to getting the proper treatment. So having said all that, those were exactly the things I wasn't doing through 99% of my career. Because to your point, been involved in a you know 400 fights over the course of my amateur and pro career. 
gosh, you know, as a rough and tumble kid, I, I can go back to my fifth and sixth year of age when I had, you know, full on blackout episodes, just, you know, doing what kids do. So literally dozens of concussions that have occurred over time. But to the, the, the point in answer to your question is, one, as a player, you don't want to give up your roster spot and admitting that you've been hurt, admitting that you've got a concussion, or at least you're experiencing sinister symptoms, for lack of a better way to describe them, you're safeguarding your roster spot on the roster when you, you don't disclose that. For me, it kind of translated across the entire NHL too. I didn't want to, I didn't want to come out of the mix anytime I was injured because I didn't want to communicate to all the other guys who did what I did. Oh, Stu's a target. I didn't want to put that bullseye on my back. I'm not saying, I'm not articulating you know, justifications I think should have weight for any player. These are things I should have, you know, brushed past and really self-reported when these things were occurring. Frankly, though, Andrew, my concussion-like symptoms didn't really kind of manifest and last beyond that one day until I was well into my 30s. So it was around that time I really started to think, wow, okay, something something wonky is happening here. I'm not shaking off these concussion-like symptoms in the way that I did in my late teens and my 20s. Now in my middle 30s, these these concussion-like symptoms are are continuing into day two, day three, day four after head trauma. Something's going on here. And I finally self-reported. Well, I've had on this podcast before Dr. Charles Tatter, who is a uh kind of the leading guy on this whole subject. And he says, it's, we just know so much more now. And his big point is you only get one brain, protect it. Stu, you played your last NHL game for the Nashville Predators in 2001. It was around this time that an MRI showed atrophy on one side of your brain, a diagnosis you only received after you had had a fight with George LaRocque that left you unusually foggy. You knew right away this is kind of it, or you were told, listen, if you keep getting trauma to your head, you're going to have big problems. Yeah, I, I suspected when I reported to the trainer soon after that fight, I suspected this could mean the end to me. It took a while for that to crystallize, I think, because, and, and I often kind of refer to it this way, Andrew, you know, I had those symptoms, they persisted beyond the second, the third, the fourth day after I suffered that blow from, uh, in a fight with George. And really, it was weeks and weeks, even months before I started to return to normal. So, you know, it, it, I think the best way to describe it is my my brain, my body just didn't give me permission to return to active play again. And, you know, I suspected that around the two-week, three-week mark. You know, it was probably confirmed to me by the end of that season, which was 2001, 2002. It was confirmed to me that I'm still dealing with these symptoms, you know, here three months later, four months later. But it took it took a while for that to kind of, again, crystallize. When was the last time you were on skates, Stu? Oh, I, uh, I played in a tournament in Winnipeg probably a little more than three weeks ago. Uh, Mike Keene, one of my contemporaries, he played in and around the time that I played. He makes his home in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Uh, every year he hosts a, um, it's kind of a, an alumni fantasy camp. You know, he sells teams spots they do a big tournament he populates each of these teams of senior league beer league guys uh populates you know two or three pros per team and we have a you know we have a, a big camp a big tournament for uh 
for a couple of days at a time. So I was up in uh, Winnipeg playing at Mike Keene's camp just uh, just a few weeks ago. Fabulous. So you still got your equipment and you're not letting it just sit there. Well, uh, I dusted off for for those occasions only. I'm so busy these days. I have a hard time finding the space to get on the ice. Much as I enjoy it, it's just uh, it's just not something I you know that gets the priority of some of the other things in my life these days. I also got to wonder uh, for someone like yourself, if you did want to just play recreationally and you want to play in a beer league, there's all kinds of guys that would be taking runs at you or trying to you know. There's Stu Grimps and I'm going to do this or that. Ironically, it's probably tougher for you to still play organized hockey with the guys that are out there knowing what's going on. Yeah. And and yeah, it's a great point because that, you know, that that sentiment really does exist out there for for a lot of folks that are playing, you know, at the senior league, rec league level. And for that reason, I, you know, I I avoid playing in that kind of a context. It's, you know, if I'm going to pick up and play, it's going to be with a guy, a a group of, you know, former players, ex-juniors, ex-college players in this area who all kind of have a a similar mindset. Get out there, skate a little bit, get a sweat on, have a good time. But, you know, nobody, uh, nobody's trying too hard to take the puck off you or (laughs) nobody's back checking on you, trying to strip you of the puck or anything like that. So it's, it's a pretty comfortable pace when we do play. Now, Stu, despite all your success on and off the ice, you are possibly most well-known for your appearance last year on The Simpsons. In this episode, Bart Simpson is having trouble being the best hockey player he can be because he's constantly being beaten down by opposing players. To fix the problem, Bart and his teammates head to Top Goon Academy, where you, Stu Grimson, are working as an instructor. Your fellow instructors were local Maple Leafs legend Dave Tiger Williams and noted Flyers pugilist Dave the Hammer Schultz. This clip appears courtesy of Fox Network's The Simpsons. Welcome to Top Goon. I'd like to introduce you to your faculty, the most feared men to ever lace them up, Dave the Hammer Schultz. That's just a nickname. My given name is David the Hammer Schultz. Stu the Grim Reaper Grimson. I look sane, but trust me, I'm not. You'll see. You'll all see. And Tiger Williams, your instructor for basic pummeling and time-permitting the American novel 1930 to the present. Uh. Stu, I can't wait to hear the story of how you got involved. And please take us behind the scenes as the process of being animated and getting your vocals recorded. Yeah, um, really unique opportunity, Andrew. And I can't tell you how thrilled I was about the Simpsons um, franchise kind of reaching out to me. But... They got a hold to me, uh, got a hold of me rather, out of nowhere. Uh, our, we have a public relations guy who kind of takes requests like this, in addition to dealing with league-wide media um, at the NHL Network, where I do a broadcasting piece. I've worked for the NHL Network, I think, the last five or six years. So out of nowhere, the Simpson contacts NHL Network. They're trying to get a hold of me. They want to cast me and a couple other enforcers in this. Uh, this one episode of The Simpsons, written by uh, a Canadian who has uh, long been a part of uh, their production team, Joel Cohen, I believe is his name. And it, it, it was just such a, a unique opportunity. Of course, right out of the gate, um, you know, they sent me a copy of the script. I understand where it's going. We're having a lot of fun with the enforcer rule, of course, which was neat. But then the production is actually quite interesting. It was, you know, something that kind of spanned several months. But really, the only lifting I did was 
you know, they arranged for a, um, a recording studio right here in Nashville where I would kind of lay down my voice tracks for uh, my spoken lines. So I show up, I'm at the recording studio, and, you know, lo and behold, they've got a, a, a Zoom, not unlike what you and I are doing here today, a Zoom, and I've got, you know, six members of the the, the creative team, the writer, the producer, the director, they're all uh, on this call with me, you know, kind of right by my side as I'm speaking these lines uh, into, you know, at the recording studio. And that was my greatest fear really going into it because I see these lines. I didn't have a lot of context for it. I'm worried about, well, gosh, I just feel like I'm I'm gonna be speaking these lines into this great vacuum. I could really use a little feedback. Well, I got more feedback than I knew what to do with. It was fabulous. They were also gracious, the six members of the creative team, but, you know, they're giving me all kinds of cues, all kinds of feedback, all kinds of context around what it is I'm doing, what my character is is kind of reacting to. So it was just a, a really terrific experience. And as part of all that, they invited my wife and I um, out to the season premiere of The Simpsons at Universal Studios in, in California. And we went out and just had the best time. And, and I'll tell you... Nobody's more thrilled than my adult children to uh, to now have this, you know, nugget where their fathers, you know, had a guest starring role in in The Simpsons. It was a it was a just a lot, a lot of fun and a wonderful experience. I was going to ask you, what's more impressive to your kids over 700 NHL games or an appearance on The Simpsons? I guess we know the answer. Well, there's there's actually another option to all that. When I played for the Mighty Ducks, my I had two tours with the Mighty Ducks. You might, your listeners might remember that was a Disney-owned franchise. We had silver passes to the theme park, we had, which gave us, you know, unfettered access. We could go anytime we wanted to. In addition to that, our silver passes provided us fifty percent off all Disney merchandise. So, so Dad was never more popular than when he was working for the mouse. That's that, great. My stock was at an all-time high in our household back then. <laughs> and I want to ask you for the Simpsons, too. Are you now uh, uh, in the union? Are you, do you get residuals? Are you an official actor? No, I, I'm. I'm not. A, I'm not SAG uh, <laughs> at this point. They kind of cut me a check for my spoken part, but it was. It was again a great, a great, great experience. So much fun. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We've got Kent Manderville, John Gibbons, Mark Cohan, André-Philippe Gagnon, and Gord Martineau. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, uh, let's jump right into that since you mentioned it. You were an original Mighty Duck of Anaheim playing in 1993 in Southern California. Jade and Eggplant are unusual team colors for a sports team. But um, the then expansion Mighty Ducks did everything in a very unique way. You've already alluded to the uh, great benefits you got. I mean, being in California, going to the parks, starting off a new team and a new organization. That must have been so exciting. Oh, it was. It was fabulous. And, I, and I've said this, you know, since that experience and, and beyond. When you get to be part of something, whether it's in the context of sport or anywhere else, really, but you're the part of some you're a part of something new and you kind of get a chance to kind of work with this, you know, this blank canvas to some degree. 
you know, it, it's it's a really unique opportunity, an exciting opportunity, Andrew. I don't think there's a better way to describe it. But the other, you know, the other component, maybe it's kind of tightly connected with all that. For me and my teammates, who were all, you know, third, fourth line, Hammonakers from all around the NHL, second string goaltenders, you know, fifth and sixth defensemen, being a part of an expansion franchise was an opportunity for all of us to take on more responsibility and to ultimately elevate our stock as NHLers. So we kind of went into it, you know, really embracing that opportunity. The better we did as a team, each of us striving to to add to what they had done in other locations in the NHL. If we could, if we could build a, you know, a, a competitive team on the ice, we'd all benefit at the end of the day. So it was a really unique experience. And I will say, just in terms of the connection between the families, nobody had ever played in California before. Nobody had family in California. So it was a little bit like my, you know, my my minor pro experience in Salt Lake City, Utah. My teammates and our families, all we had was one another. So it was a really tight-knit group. We really formed some great, some lasting relationships there. Some that for me, you know, continue on, are sustained even today. And it, it, it was just on so many levels. It was just a, a, a great, great experience. What a great experience. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, despite your uh, fearsome reputation on the ice and being a, a, quote, hockey player, people were surprised perhaps how intelligent and articulate you are off the ice. And in fact, after retiring, you completed not only your undergraduate degree in economics, but you also earned your law degree in 2005 from the University of Memphis Law School. How did you enjoy college life? And uh, what made you take such a big career turn after you finished hockey? Well, you know, college life was interesting couple of years of college at the University of Manitoba before I ultimately signed my first pro contract. So I left early. I still had some time or so I still had uh, work left to do on my undergraduate degree by the time I retired from the game. So going back to college as a 30, I believe 37 year old male was a bit of a challenge. But I I embraced it. I, I was I was really kind of I knew that it was going to take me a couple of years to kind of figure out what it is I wanted to do as I transitioned from the game. So it made great sense to me, one, to knock out my undergraduate degree, but then two, to go on and, and earn a graduate degree. The law seemed to make the most sense. But I think it began to kind of become clear to me as I as I worked my way through this process, um, I'd seen a lot of former players earn a degree in the law, become lawyers, and go on to work in, in some really exciting roles in and around the NHL, you know, like being an agent, like being a, a manager for a team, you know, in addition to a number of other vocations that ex-NHLers had kind of gone on to 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 do. So um, it was really, I think it had, a, there are a lot of those elements that were going on that kind of caused me to take the approach that I did, Andrew. Yeah. And of course, you did complete your degree and you were licensed. I wonder if you, did you ever actually practice law? I did. I did for several years. Um, I worked for two years uh, for the Players Union after I graduated from Memphis, uh, earned my law degree and graduated from Memphis. I wrote the Tennessee Bar. I went up to Toronto and worked for the union for two years as in-house counsel. That kind of went sideways, kind of a tumultuous time within which I was hired. Family and I came back to Tennessee and I litigated for 
uh, five plus years with a, a local firm here in town. And honestly, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life professionally, very demanding job, very demanding role, but very interesting. And I, I'm fond of saying to, you know, to young professionals, young law students and lawyers starting out, you know, if you can litigate for, you know, four, six, eight years, even if you don't do that for the rest of your career, I, I it's just such a, an important professional experience if you can do that and and effectively represent your clients and and move you know a caseload of 30 40 50 cases you know just move those issues down the line and and successfully represent your clients over the course of you know uh, a protracted length of time I, i'm fond of saying i don't there's nothing you can't do professionally you're qualified to do a, a great number of things so it was a great experience for me and then since then, I've actually kind of, I've gone on to, to straddle the fence the between the legal world and the hockey playing world. I do a couple of things today, and perhaps we're going to get into this. So if I'm kind of jumping the gun on you, I apologize. But I'm in-house counsel for a local company here in town. Uh, that's kind of my day job. And then I do, um, I do a broadcasting piece with the Nashville, sorry, sorry, the NHL Network. Uh, up in Secaucus, New Jersey. So that's that's kind of the way I divide my time professionally these days. Excellent. Well, let's talk a little about your broadcasting work. As you note, NHL Network today, but you used to be the analyst for the Nashville Predators. I wonder how you enjoyed being on TV, and uh, did you enjoy being focused on the one team versus with the NHL Network, having to keep yeah, track of all 32 teams? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. It really is. It's it's an important distinction too. Um, the short answer is yes. I've enjoyed broadcasting, and I think the the expanded answer is kind of that's coming from a guy that left the game going broadcasting's not for me. I got no time for that. That's not. I just that's I'm not the way I'm wired. I was practicing law here in town in Nashville. The Predators actually approached me. They said, "Hey, we're we're splitting up our simulcast. We're no longer going to have you know the TV be our radio broadcast. We've got to." Uh, a, a radio play-by-play -play guy, but we'd love if you would just jump on the radio for the home games. You don't have to travel. Um, just provide us some color commentary for the 41 home dates we do every year. So I figured I'd give it a try. You know, uh, I'm pretty much up for anything at least one time. And lo and behold, I loved it more than I thought I would. Long story short, it turned into a TV opportunity with the Predators. And after doing that for a handful of years, I decided to make a shift from following one team, as you say, which is great. It's it's you you get to know everybody's story. You get to know, you know, the team so intimately well. You've always got this kind of running narrative in your head about what's happening with your team. In my case, the Predators. The downside of that is, and this is what ultimately drew me to the NHL Network. When you're covering one team, you're with that team, tied to that team from September to June, should you be that fortunate to go that deep, but you're, you know, you're at the, you're covering the business of hockey every day, pretty much all day long. And that can be a little bit, you know, all consuming. NHL Network, by contrast, I'm a studio analyst. I go up to Secaucus, New Jersey. We produce it at a, a studio in New Jersey. In a, in a, in a typical, my typical routine, uh, a typical month, I go up there every other week during hockey season. I knock out four day, five days at a time. And, and I really like the flexibility it gives me to, one, kind of cover hockey, cover the game. But then, you know, again, I mentioned this earlier, 
when I'm back in Nashville, like I am today, I'm kind of working, you know, a corporate job, so to speak, for a, a small little company here in in Nashville, which helps me kind of exercise that that legal muscle that I've gained over time, which I really enjoy. That's great. You got the best of both worlds. I really do. I really do. I consider myself incredibly fortunate. Professionally, I am very, very satisfied just doing what I do. And I have to ask you about the whole culture, hockey culture in the South, Nashville, Tennessee. You're a Canadian boy. You know all the tropes, the stereotypes. They don't know what icing is. They cheer at the wrong time. They don't understand the game. What is the uh, hockey culture in Nashville, Tennessee these days? Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, the the tropes would have certainly applied way back at the inception of this franchise, especially in an area like this. I went through it in Southern California to some degree as well as a member of the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim. But um, it, it took Tennesseans a while to figure out the game, uh, its nuances and what it was all about. I probably got here relatively late in the education period. During my time with the the franchise, and again, I think I was a member of the organization three years into their existence, maybe four years into their existence. But, you know, here are some of the, the nuanced moments that, that fans in Tennessee really started to get it, you know killing off a penalty at a critical moment in the game, just holding the other side to, you know, to few offensive opportunities and ultimately going on to, to win a game as a great penalty kill. Um, I, I thought another one was, you know, there come these moments from time to time, Andrew, your team is kind of holding possession in the offensive zone and for a longer stretch of time, but the ability to cycle out five skaters and still maintain possession in the offensive zone, like they, that takes a fairly trained, educated eye to see that. And in my first year with the Nashville Predators, there are a lot of moments like that. But when you, when you feel the crowd starting to become energized and then they ultimately erupt and it's not a goal, it's not a fight, it's not a big save. It's something like you've cycled out five guys. They still, we still have possession in the offensive zone and the crowd's going crazy. It was like, man, like that's, that's kind of a, that's a very nuanced play, but they get it. Like they get how cool that is. Yeah. So let me just button up that piece of the conversation too, by saying, Nashville has a reputation of being one of the most energized electric buildings in the NHL. And I will say, you know, they've kind of put their own stamp on it. They do things in a different way. It's a really unique experience when you see a game here in Nashville as contrasted to, you know, just about anywhere else in the league, certainly north of the border. But it's um, there's something there for everyone and it's a whole lot of fun. Well, especially during pandemic, so many people left to different places. Did you yeah. find a lot of Canadians ended up coming into the Nashville area? Oh, yeah, we, we, we get that a lot. A lot of Canadians come down here to see uh, the game. You know, a lot of folks from local markets where it's harder to get to games, too. This isn't necessarily true of Chicago so much today, given, you know, Chicago's struggling to kind of be competitive. But back when that rivalry, Nashville versus Chicago in the Central Division, was was very competitive and these teams were facing each other in the playoffs, we get a lot, a lot of red jerseys inside the buildings <laughs> when the Blackhawks were in town. Um and it's a short plane ride or even a you know a seven or eight hour car ride uh, from here to Chicago. So we're we're getting a lot of Hawks fans for 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 Hawks versus Preds for sure. Great rivalry. Yeah. Now, Stu, we covered a lot of ground. We covered athlete, animated figure, attorney, 
analyst. There's one more big A author. In 2019, your book came out, The Grim Reaper, The Life and Career of a Reluctant Warrior. Had this book come about, and how did you enjoy the whole writing process? Oh, I really enjoyed it. I really did. Um, I had, you know, a literary agent. His name is Brian Wood. He contacted me, boy, five years before we actually ever sat down, rolled up our sleeves and started on the project. But I, you know, Brian came to me three different times, I, I estimate, and said, you know, I, I, I really think you got a great story, one that's worth telling. I would love to take this to a publisher. And I was like, Eh, fourth line ham and agar nobody wants to hear my story but i had a lot of people in my life apart from brian kind of communicating that to me over time and i will say this my wife jennifer was probably the the tipping point for me she she really thought it made great sense she was constantly nudging me in that direction Secretly, because I think she wanted her own chapter in the book. You know, I think that's really what was going on in her mind. But no, in all seriousness, really glad that I struck up um, with Penguin Random House Publishing back in Canada. They were, from from the first meeting, Nick Garrison, who was my senior uh, editor at the time, I think is still in that position today, he had a he had a passion for the project that just communicated in our first meeting. I actually walked out of that meeting going, they get it. They get what's kind of unique about my story. They really want to do it. They made us a strong offer. And then being a part of the writing process, myself, Kevin Allen, and Nick Garrison was very involved in this as well. I wrote more than I thought I would. Um, And writing for me was mostly editing and trying to communicate as much of myself through the words on the page as anything but it was uh you know it was a, a taxing process a long process but a really really rewarding process to, to ultimately come away you know with this physical product maybe uh, even electronic product at the end of the day because i read the book for audio it was it was just a really rewarding process i'm so i'm so thrilled with the finished product and i tell you Honestly, Andrew, I think the thing that I have enjoyed the most, I communicated a lot of lessons, life lessons, most of which came through my career. And as I communicate those to folks that never played pro hockey, I'm so encouraged that, you know, tradespeople or, you know, white collar executives um, are communicating back to me, hey, you learned this in your profession. It applied to me in my profession. And you know, I, I was able to, 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 you know, to learn something to, to actually affect some change in my life for the better. And I was like, I, I was just so glad the way it resonated in the way that it did. So it was a really fulfilling process. Um, so glad that I did it. And Stu, your former teammate, Paul Correa wrote the forward to your book. Did he do this in appreciation for all the goals uh, you set him up for? <laughs> well, um, I, I, did, I did provide a service of some kind to Paul. And Paul is, I love, you know, Paul and I have always had a great relationship. Um, he's such a unique character. He always enjoyed, I used to kind of sarcastically and euphemistically say, you know, what I did was I provided a safe working environment for, yes. for my fellow teammates. Paul loved that. So he loved to be able to incorporate that as part of his forward. But I was so thrilled that Paul agreed to do it. He's such a smart, 
such a bright guy. He's got such a dry, witty sense of humor. Um, and he appreciates that sense of humor in other people. But uh, I, I was really thrilled that somebody with his pedigree would, would agree to write my forward. And yeah, he's that was a that was just kind of the icing on the cake. Uh, Stu, I want to give a shout out to a friend of this podcast, Joe Jackman, and his organization, One for All. What is your involvement with their work towards helping athletes better plan their transition to regular civilian lives? Yeah, I kind of serve it as an advisor in an advisor capacity for One for All. And actually, for me, it's it's interesting because I come full circle where the One for All concept and even Joe Jackman is concerned. I played a 17-year pro hockey career. I was kind of wrapping things up, as we've described earlier. And as part of that, I maintained a real good connection with folks that worked at the union. And I, I turned to a friend of mine, Mike Gardner, who was um, kind of a player advisor role with the union. Uh, he was heading up their life after hockey uh, concept, uh, program rather. And Gart said, hey, we're just getting this program started. You'd be kind of a test, you know, like a, a guinea pig, a, a test drive for us. Would you consider kind of signing up for this? Work your way through it. Joe Jackman was heading it up along with another fellow by the name of Duncan Fletcher. Let's bring these guys around you. They'll help you kind of finish off your undergraduate degree. If you want to go on and do a graduate degree, you know, they'll we'll get you on this education track and let's have Joe and, and, uh, and Duncan advise you as part of the process. So, you know, that was a, a great success story in my life. Joe circled back with me at a much, you know, I guess, you know, maybe a couple of decades later. And he said, I've got this one for all concept that's going on. Um, would you consider coming aboard? So of course I picked up the mantle, happy to be a part of that because you know, it was so instrumental in me kind of pivoting from my uh, position role in, in the NHL and going on to do some other exciting things in another kind of walk of life. So, yeah, that's that's been kind of my connection to One for All. And, you know, I, I advise where the company is concerned and when I have the space and when it makes sense, I can be a mentor to young mentees who are you know, maybe in the senior stage of their career or have left, you know, pro sports in some way. And, you know, I can kind of come alongside and maybe open up my network of contacts if if there's if there's some overlap there. So very excited about that work because I, you know, I think it um, it's a it's a natural it's uh, it's it's one way for athletes who have enjoyed a career of some kind get a chance to kind of pay it forward a little bit. Yeah, well, clearly you're a great case study for transitioning from that professional athletic career to a very successful post-athletic career. As we close up, Stu, I want to ask you, if you're on social media, where can people best follow you and uh, know what you're up to? Instagram, I'm not terribly active there, but I'm at official Stu Grimson uh, on Instagram. Uh, if, you've, if you're on Twitter from time to time, I'm at A.S. Grimson. You can find me on Twitter. Um, those are my those are two spots where I'm you know you can you can see you can see and interact with me excellent well great well it was great meeting you getting to know you and hearing your stories and I want to wish you uh, continued success thank you Andrew this has been great it's been a good time my pleasure and to the listeners on behalf of the Grim Reaper Stu Grimson I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast
Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network.